So um, today we are going to take a break from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and if the Lord is willing, I'll pick back up with that next week and we'll, we'll get it, we'll finish it out uh, this year. <laughs> Because it's been a, we've been on it for a while. I am I'm going to do something I don't normally do, and I'm going to jump into the waters of current events and social change and the change in the social climate. Uh, we are going to look at biblical morality and biblical sexuality uh, today. And just as a way of framing things, I'm, I'm not doing this in order to try to convince anyone. Now, I mean, I, I could be wrong in my assumptions. Oftentimes I am. Um, but I, I don't think that there would be anyone here today who would have a wildly different opinion on these matters than, than I do or than what the church holds um, in matters of sexual purity and sexual morality. So my focus, my, my job this morning, isn't necessarily to try to convince anybody. I'm not in the convincing mode. My, my primary focus is uh, to try to maybe add clarity and certainly to try to confirm, not to convince, but to confirm biblical views of sexuality. <clears throat> Second Timothy Chapter 3, verse 16, Paul gives us a very, very famous text about all of Scripture. And he says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the Scripture is definitely to be uh, used and definitely to be looked to for reproof and correction. And the preaching of Scripture, by extension, then should reprove and it should correct. It needs to punch you in the gut Amen. from time to time. Amen. It needs to slap you in the face from time to time and let you know that you're, you're erred in your ways. So in other words, one of the goals of preaching is to convince, to convince you that there is a better way. Amen. Now, you believe and you behave one way. And I need to convince you that there is a better way. I need to convince you by the scriptures that there is a better way. We use preaching for that. Scripture is also profitable, however, for teaching and training in righteousness. That's what he says. So then preaching should also teach and train in righteousness. In other words, another goal of preaching is to clarify and confirm. To clarify and confirm. So you know that as a Christian that we hold certain beliefs and values. So one of the goals of preaching is to clarify and confirm by the Scriptures what, why, and how we believe and behave. So I don't, I don't feel a very heavy burden to try to convince anyone today. My burden is to confirm. All right? So why this topic? Why, why today? I'm going to read to you uh, pieces of a letter that was uh, recently sent from a Christian pastor in Canada. His name is Andrew DeBartolo, and he is the teaching elder at Encounter Church in Ontario, Canada. He sent this letter to a prominent pastor here in the United States 
hoping that he would get the word out to as many U.S. pastors as possible, and he did. This letter uh, made it to my inbox a few days ago. So, a brief introduction the letter contains, obviously. You know, you see that in Paul's letters, brief introductions and some niceties, some pleasantries, and then he gets to the meat of why he's writing. He's writing about legislation in Canada, and he says this. Bill C-4, that's the name of the bill, passed through the House and the Senate without opposition. Not a single dissenting vote was cast by any member of the conservative party. It received royal assent on December 8th, which means it will become law January 8th, 2022. This bill will amend the Criminal Code of Canada to ban what it calls conversion therapy. It will criminalize, among other things, causing, this is quoting the bill, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. Now, he continues with some language of the bill. Before I get into that, I need to explain to you a definition of a word that you may or may not know. The word is cisgender. Anyone ever heard that word, cisgender? C-I-S-G-E-N-D-E-R. It's a non-necessary word that explains the obvious. Because in all the confusion today, we have to come up with words to explain the obvious. A cisgender person, C-I-S-G-E-N-D-E-R, is someone who um, lives as their biological sex. So I live as a man, Biologically, I'm a man. Those things are congruous. I am what they call cisgender. Okay? So you just need to understand the definition of that word, basically how we all live, um, in order to understand what the bill is saying. In the preamble of the bill, it says that the belief that heterosexuality, cisgender, gender identity... And gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. That belief is a myth. According to Canadian law, as of January 8th, the law of the land, the belief in God's design for marriage and human sexuality is now seen as a legal myth. So the bill outlaws or it outlines uh, conversion therapy and it outlaws conversion therapy. The problem is that it defines conversion therapy incredibly broadly. The language is very broad. It's overly broad on purpose. The letter continues with an explanation. The bill defines conversion therapy as this, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual. Change a person's gender identity to cisgender. Change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. Repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity. Or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. So pretty much... Anything that tries to describe the biblical model is considered conversion therapy. The definition is intentionally broad 
so it can clearly be used against any preacher, any church leader who either speaks against homosexuality and transgenderism as a sin or counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual uh, or transgender actions and lifestyle. Even if the person who is homosexual or transgender is seeking help. And this happens all the time. So they get caught up in this. They feel something's wrong. There's something not right, and they go seeking help. And the pastor says, let me walk you through the scripture about what human sexuality is supposed to look like. Let me show you where you can find deliverance through the scripture. And even in that circumstance, because, you know, if one of their friends is unhappy with the decision that they've made to try to come out of this, they can be reported and they can be imprisoned. As of January 8th of this year, it's against the law in Canada to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. The law says, this is quoting, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. So if I want to hold a conference on biblical marriage, come to this seminar on biblical marriage, help your marriage. If I dare to mention that God's design for marriage is for one man and one woman, I am guilty of, this, of transgressing this law and subject to be imprisoned for up to five years in Canada as of today. That's the law of the land right now. And you may be thinking, Jeff, that's a Canadian issue. It's a Canadian law. Why are you bringing it up here? Well, the letter continues. He says, on January 16th, 2022, faithful men across this country, across Canada, and many in the United States, hopefully, will be preaching on or making statements on God's design for marriage and biblical ethic of sexuality. In Canada, we will be doing so illegally, declaring to the state that there is one God and one Lord over his church, and that Christ alone gets to both define marriage and dictate what is required in the pulpit. We would be honored if our American brothers joined us in this. So number one, why this topic and why today? Because they asked for help. Our brothers and sisters have asked for help, and this is the help that they requested from us, that we vocalize the biblical model for sexuality. I felt a conviction to stand beside my brothers and sisters in Canada as they boldly and bravely proclaim the gospel of Christ under the threat of imprisonment by their own government. And don't you know that there will be wolves sitting in just about every congregation today? waiting to pounce. Even though there is not one single solitary Canadian who has ever heard of this small town preacher from Northeast Texas, I hear them, I see them, and I want to add my voice and the voice of this congregation to the body of believers 
to the thousands today who will make a very unpopular and unapologetic stand for biblical morality, biblical sexuality, and proclaim that we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Now you're thinking, I don't have anything to do with this. I don't have a problem with this. I mean, I'm, I'm married happily for 100 years. I'm past the age of any of this stuff matters to me. Well, it matters because it's in your backyard. And as I was telling my daughter yesterday, the, the point isn't to convince you. It's to confirm for you. When you're confronted, how, how do you stand if you have nothing on which to stand? If your only answer to objections about biblical morality and biblical sexuality is, well, my pastor said, then you, you are woefully unprepared. Amen. Amen. Number two, why this topic, why today? It's because the Bible speaks very loudly about sexual sin. Amen. In this country, heresies like wokeism, Identity Christianity, social justice gospel, forgiveness only gospel, those things are sweeping through pulpits and churches at a pace never contemplated in our time. Churches are hosting things like drag queen Sundays. They're ordaining openly gay and transgender people as pastors and spiritual leaders, and they're joyfully preaching celebrations and affirmations of people's sin as they ascribe to the Holy Spirit the very things the apostles tell us that we ought to run from. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there is no sin, no sin that is pleasing to God, not one. It all stinks in his nostrils like the stench, the putrid stench of dead, decaying flesh. All of it. All of it from the very little tiny bits of pride that we hold in our lives to the most egregious atrocities imaginable. All sin is damnable before God. It stinks in his nostril. He abhors it. But there are few sins. There are sins, but there are few about which the Bible is so firm and alarming in its language as sexual immorality. The apostles tell us to flee sexual immorality. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Just a few verses earlier in, in chapter 6, in verse uh, 9, Paul goes to great lengths to tell us that unrighteousness will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, or do you not know, in chapter 6, verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually... Look, he wouldn't tell them, don't be deceived, if it were not a tool of deception if they weren't already being deceived, if this weren't something that it was easy to get deceived and confused about. He's making it clear. Do not be deceived. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven if you are sexually immoral. 
the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, verse 10, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived about these things. Paul spends a great deal of time in 1 Corinthians dealing with sexual purity. There are, what, nine, nine sins, nine manners of unrighteousness that are listed there. Fully a third of them deal with sexual purity. In chapter 7, verse 2, he says, Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He's echoing and reinforcing the biblical model for marriage that was laid out in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Biblical marriage, one man, one woman. And it's sad that in this day and age I have to add a qualifier, one biological man and one biological woman. You'd think that made sense, and up until about 10 years ago, it did. It was just assumed, but confusion. This leads me to this. What does the Bible mean when it says sexually or sexual immorality? <clears throat> We've seen that phrase before uh, a couple times already, you know, uh, and you're, you'll see it several places in the Scripture. Sexual immorality, the Greek is pornea. Uh, it mainly refers to fornication when it's used. Fornication, and that means that when two people who are not married share the physical intimacy that is designed and reserved for people who are married. Let me be clear about this. God does not hate sex. It is a gift. He designed it. He designed it to be between one man and one woman under the lifetime covenant bond of marriage. Under any other circumstance, sex is a wicked perversion of the design of God. And if you've been with us on Wednesday nights as we walked through 1 Corinthians, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul reasons that one of the benefits, the treasures that marriage gives us is that it acts as a shield against the sexual immorality that's what he said in that passage we just read. To, to guard against sexual, because of the temptation of sexual morality, every man should have a wife, let every woman have a husband. It, it, is a, it acts as a shield against sexual immorality because it gives us space to explore and enjoy the gift of God within the good and righteous design of God. Anything outside that outside is outside the design of God, and it's outside of the will of God, and therefore it is immoral, and therefore it is sinful, and it is to be condemned. And it will be condemned. We should just be very clear about that. But it's not just behavior that we're warned against. There's, there's something that leads to behavior, and that is desire. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 We'll, we'll walk through this here. Paul begins in verse 3, and he, just, he gets right to the point. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. For the will of God, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is your holiness, 
And then he tells us that a big part of your holiness, your sanctification, is sexual purity. Remaining sexually pure. To abstain from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians, back in 1 Corinthians, Paul said, you remember, that the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And here in this letter to Thessalonians, he tells them that it is also a transgression against others. Look at verse 6. He said that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. In what matter? In the matter of sexual immorality, fornication. That's any sexual behavior outside the lifelong covenant between one biological man and one biological woman in the design of God. When you commit sexual immorality or fornication, not only are you sinning against your own body, as Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, you are sinning against others as well, as he outlines in 1 Thessalonians. But don't think about sex, like I said, as only, or immorality is only about sex outside the biblical marriage covenant. Verse 4, Paul tells us that we should, that everyone should know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So he contrasts knowing our body in holiness and honor over against the passion of lust or, or lustful passion like the Gentiles do. So it's also, it's the issue here as Paul lays out, it's not just behavior. It isn't just physical acts of sexual immorality. It's also immoral desires. Sexual desires that dominate and drive our lives in ways that they really shouldn't. Desires that lead us to things like pornography and same-sex attraction and lustful intentions towards others. What did Jesus say about lusting after another woman? He said, if you so much as look at her to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. When these desires are, are placated, when we, when we satisfy these desires, even in the littlest way, they are allowed to grow, and almost always they lead to enslavement of the soul. Amen. Enslavement. And in case you need a strong warning against sexual immorality, look at what Paul says in verse 6. He says, because, this is the ground clause. He says, you know, abstain from sexual immorality. We want you, you know, to, be, to walk in holiness. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger of all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This is a warning. The Lord is an avenger in these things. So why do we hear to a, a biblical model for marriage and sexuality? Because the Lord has said, and he will avenge not only himself and his word, but he will avenge the others that we have wronged when we fall into sexual immorality with them. And in the case of, of just the thoughts that we have and that we placate when we, we look to someone in order to lust after him, they haven't entered into, into sexual immorality, but you have against that person. That's what the scripture teaches us. And God will avenge that. So we, we fight against sexual immorality in our lives. It's a constant battle because the enemy knows it's a very powerful weapon. It's a very powerful weapon. He knows that, that we are bombarded with temptations every day. 
We need to be mindful. We need to be aware every day. Every time you turn on your phone, every time you browse the internet, every time you turn on the television to watch that TV show, the, the sin is crouching at the door. And if you do not rule over it, it will rule over you. We haven't had cable in a long time, so commercials aren't so much an issue in my home anymore, but we're heavily advertised at on, on social media and on the Internet. And I remember uh, several months ago, there was a period of about two months uh, where every time I opened up Facebook, I would see uh, a lingerie ad. Now, I've never clicked on a lingerie ad or gone to a lingerie website or anything like that. And so you click on the little button that says, why am I seeing this? I don't want to see this. Why am I seeing this? And it tells you why you're seeing it. You're targeted in this demographic because you are a male who is in his 40s. And just by virtue of being a man in my 40s, I'm getting targeted with ads for lingerie. Buy your wife something sexy. There's always some scantily clad woman on there. Nothing pornographic per se, but, but certainly not something I want in, in my eyes. And so for two months, I had to go through and, and, and I'd click on the little, little you know, uh, menu button to say, I don't want to see this kind of ad anymore and tell it why I don't want to see it. And so it took about two months before I stopped seeing those kinds of things, just being bombarded with them. But I had to be persistent in that. I'm saying sin is crouching at the door. And just, just the little images here and there. If we're not careful, if we're not aware of it, it will rule over us, and then we have fallen into sexual morality, which the Bible is not silent about, is not whisper about. Verse 7, for God has not called us to impurity, church, but to holiness. That's what he's called us to. Why do we fight? Because God has called me to holiness and not impurity. Paul gives us reason for sexual immorality, why it even happens back in verse 5. He said, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles do, who do not know God. So like the Gentiles, and here it is, who do not know God. They don't know God. It is impossible to fight this fight and win without knowing God. And I don't mean knowing 100,000 things about God. I mean knowing Him prayerfully, worshipfully, fatherly, knowing Him. How did we get here? Why do we have all this confusion? The Bible's pretty clear about biblical marriage, biblical sexuality, I think. And I'm just scratching the surface of what it has to say today, just giving you some, some uh, you know, uh, big proof texts. There's a lot more about it. I mean, Leviticus is full of sexual laws about sexual purity. How do we get here today, though? Even among people who call themselves Christians, if you were to have been with us while we walked through 1 Corinthians uh, in our midweek Bible study, you might have wondered to yourself, how in the world can any of these people call themselves Christians? I mean, Paul, how could Paul call them brothers? I mean, they, they are messed up. If you read 1 Corinthians, that's, you're, I promise you that's what you're going to think. If you read it right, they are messed up. How could they call them Christians? I mean, there was a, a guy who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and everybody was celebrating it. They're all happy about it. Oh, good for you. 
They were getting drunk off the communion wine. They were bickering and backbiting and and, uh, suing one another and just have all kinds of issues. A lot of confusion. And yet, what did Paul do? He commended them. Right at the outset, he commended them. He told them that the testimony of Christ had been confirmed among them. He said, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. There's a a lot of confusion. But my goodness, if if you read that letter you will quickly see they were off the rails on a number of things. And Paul, he wastes no time because he loves them. He loves them. And in love, he wastes no time and he minces no words in setting them straight. You read that letter and how he speaks to them. In some places, he comes across as a gentle, wise grandfather who's just trying to, you know, coach them along the way and, and get, keep them in, you know, in, in the lines. Don't get too far off. Don't get too, stay right here. And other times, he is a hard taskmaster. And he calls them out. You are wrong. It needs to change. And if it don't change, I'm going to come change it. Amen. Where the gospel and the glory of God are at stake, Paul does not play games. And unfortunately... For decades in this country and around the world, we have not been like that. Amen. Amen. It's not been the case for many of the leaders in churches. We got to a, this point, we got to this time of confusion and division over sin in the body of Christ because pastors and leaders have been more worried about building and running organizations than they have been about making disciples of Jesus Christ. Well, if I say it like the Bible says it, Mm -hmm. they might get offended Mm -hmm. and they'll leave. For decades, the seeker-sensitive model of church has whitewashed sin and it has put forth a come-as-you-are-and-stay-as-you-are forgiveness-only kind of a gospel, all the warm fuzzies of the gospel. I mean, the Bible says, sure, the Bible says to to be holy even as your Father is holy. The Bible says to shun the very appearance of evil. The Bible says that no unrighteousness will enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus has come the way that you are. Just come like you are, and and he will embrace you the way you are, and let's just uh, keep the key on the the warm and fuzzy things, the warm and fuzzy parts, and let's downplay the wrath of God and his holiness. Without realizing it, they've pitted Jesus Christ against his teaching. They've created a Christ in their minds that is not the Christ of the Bible. They don't read their Bibles, obviously. Clearly not, because it's, it's clear they don't know the God of the Bible. It just blows me away how Christian leaders can, can downplay the wrath of God over sin. I mean, what do they think that Jesus came here to save us from? What, what do we need salvation from? Do we need salvation from hell? No, we need salvation from God, from the wrath, the just wrath of God. 
The same Christ that hung on the cross and stretched his arm wide and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do is the same Christ that will sit on the throne of judgment at the end of days and say, be gone from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And you'll be cast into outer darkness for eternity. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ would never have been necessary apart from the wrath and judgment of God. We've, we've not heard that. It may not compute for some of you. I mean, you get, God is love, God is love, and He is. And He's judgment and He's wrath. And how does that compute? It's, it's no different than how I can love my children and still punish them for their disobedience. Actually, I, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't compare the two. It's not. It's very different. I shouldn't compare it like that. God is, is perfect and just and righteous in his judgments, absolutely righteous in his judgments, and I am not. Make no mistake, we as the saints of God, when we stand before the throne on that great day, we will marvel. We will rejoice. That's what the Revelation says. We will rejoice over his righteous judgment. And you think, oh, we'll be sad for all those people. No, we'll rejoice that God is righteous. The reason that younger generations are so disillusioned with church today is because they're desperate for something real, something authentic. They are hungry for real, solid theology. They're hungry for sound doctrine. They, they want authority that is firm and true, not shifting sands of cultural norms and persuasions. You can look at poll after poll after poll of young people and why they're leaving church and why they don't want to have anything to do with church and why they don't want to come to church. And that's exactly what they say. It's not real. And unfortunately, for some reason, church leaders who are my age and older, they'll read that data and say, oh, they must want more lights and they must want more gimmicks and they must want more smoke and they must want more feel-good-about-yourself kind of theology. We got to get them in the door. What they want is real, and we've not given it to them. We're here because we failed to speak the truth in love. We're here because we have bowed to pressure and fears of offending someone. The gospel is offensive to the lost because it demands denial of self and the crucifixion of sin every day. The gospel is foolish to those who are lost, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We cannot be obedient to God and be silent about these things. It's that old adage, if you saw your friend running towards a cliff, would you, would you not do what you could to stop him? Oh, but he's happy. Look at him. Look at his, oh, he's running and the air is, wind is in his face and, and oh, he just looks so happy. Oh, let him go. We cannot be loving and be affirming. Amen. 
in uh, 2012, just to give you, just to put this even closer into your backyard, the state of California passed Senate Bill 1172, which banned gay conversion alongside New York, New Jersey, and Nevada. Now, in those bills, they had a slightly more narrow definition of what conversion therapy was, just, just narrow enough to let it skate by constitutional challenges. But in doing this, the California government sought to prohibit any correction of an unbiblical view of sexual identity because the state of California stated that it has a compelling interest in protecting the well-being of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals. They have no idea what well-being is. On August 18, 2020, barely a year ago, the Democratic Party declared, at the, and I don't like to get political in the pulpit, but this what happened. The Democratic Party declared at the National Democratic National Convention in 2020 that it would ban harmful conversion therapy practices. Now, here's the thing. They get to define what is harmful. They get to define what are conversion therapy practices. If you think what's happening in Canada cannot happen here, what is happening right now cannot happen here, you got another thing coming. The Obama administration appointed more than 250 LGBTQ people to its administration to serve in government, to govern. And the Biden administration has promised to do even more than that, and they have done so. There, and I'm, I'm not telling you this because I'm trying to cast hatred or, or anything like that. That's not it at all. I'm not telling you this to try to disparage people who are, who are homosexual or who have other gender identities. I'm not telling you this to tell you that we should look at them with disdain at all. And I'll get to that here in just a minute. The only reason I'm bringing those numbers up is to show you that there is an aggressive political priority to make perversion safe from criticism in the United States. You cannot criticize perversion. And there's an aggressive agenda to make that happen. I want to close by reading a passage of Scripture to you from Romans chapter 1. It's a lengthy passage, so bear with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. He says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Listen. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, boy, does that sound familiar, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. 
And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I'm just going to let that sit without commentary. Because I certainly can't improve on what the Apostle Paul said, nor do I think I could explain it better than what he already did. I will say this to my brothers and sisters in Christ in front of me. If you have any question about what is happening in our culture today with sex and gender ideology, look no further than Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 32. In fact, just reading that passage aloud in Canada would be enough to get me thrown into prison for five years. We record these messages for those people who cannot be here. And I post the videos up on different venues, social media, Facebook, YouTube, podcast, uh, so that they can see it after the fact. I don't, it's not advertised. I don't, it's not, I'm not trying to build a platform. I've just been asked to make it available for when people are absent. The fact that I read those verses is enough to get me banned from those platforms today here in this country so that I can't post again. I'm not particularly worried about that, though, because my audience is not social media. I am concerned about obeying Christ and glorifying God. I'm concerned about the countless number of people who are slaves to sexual perversion. And I'm I'm not just talking about the ones who are slaves to homosexuality and transgenderism. Sexual perversion takes many forms. I'm concerned about all of them who are slaves to sexual perversion. Countless people who have abandoned the glory of God to serve their own lusts. All of that being said, you know, we can trumpet truth all day. We can draw lines in the sand and we can say this far and no further. We can arm ourselves for spiritual battle and stand firm where the Lord has told us to stand firm. Having all, having done all we can do to stand, we can do all that. And that is good, that is right and just. But in all of that, in all of our standing, in all of our trumpeting, in all of our drawing lines in the sand, we are to be like Christ who loved the world so much that he stretched his arms wide and died for them, who loved the world so much that he hung on the cross, that he took their wrath, let them murder him, all the while saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He is the Savior. Let it not be misunderstood. He is the Savior. Savior who is first meek and lowly of heart. And he calls us to be the same. Amen. Amen. We are to be like him in all of our trumpeting, in all of our standing. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I thank you for your word. And right now, Lord, I say a a special prayer for our brothers and sisters in Canada, Lord, uh, as they've come under governmental oppression. Father, you have established an eternal kingdom. And we long for the day when we will see that our faith will become sight, Lord, and we will live in a perfect kingdom that you have created. 
And Lord, until then, we groan. With all of creation, we groan. Father, we ask for you to to rain your Holy Spirit down upon churches all across this country, all across the world, who are trying to be faithful, Lord, in taking a stand and speaking what is true according to your word. I ask you to let it be received in love. I ask you to move in a mighty way. You are ever so good to us. Lord, protect us and keep us safe as we go about our separate ways. Bring us back safely. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.